Welcome to Our Seven Neighbors, Season 3, Birth of a Chicago Civil Rights Movement, Stories from the Archives, brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at Chicago Theological Seminary. I am Kim Schultz, Coordinator of Creative Initiatives at CTS and producer of this podcast. Last year at CTS, we began a project entitled the Jesse Jackson Oral History Project, in which we interviewed the Reverend Jesse Jackson himself, along with civil rights leaders active in Chicago at the time with Reverend Jackson. We will be launching that project very soon. Stay tuned. In the meantime, for each episode of this podcast, we are pairing a brief cutting from an interview from the Jesse Jackson Oral History Project with a special podcast guest doing the work of justice today. We hope to reflect on and learn from then so we can deepen equity work happening now. But before we get to today's guest and have that discussion, let's bring in our host, Reverend Brian Smith. Hey, Brian. Hi, Kim. Thanks. For this episode, we welcome the Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie. I'm looking forward to being in conversation with her. But before we get to that conversation, let's go to the archives. Let's take a listen to this part of our interview with Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson. Reverend Dr. Wilson serves as Senior Advisor and Director of Push Excel with Rainbow Push Incorporated. She also serves as Pastor of the Maple Park United Methodist Church. Let's take a listen to a piece of her interview we recorded for the Jackson Oral Archive Project here at CTS. And so at an early age, you became involved in the Chicago Civil Rights Movement. I used to go to Operation Breadbasket. They had Saturday meetings, and so my father would take me, and I would go on the picket lines, and and he would bring water and juice to my picket line. So we we closed down AMP, we closed down National Tea Foods, we would shut down those grocery stores that sold bad meat, that sold spoiled food, because what happens in the black community, we didn't get the fresh vegetables and meats. We got the meat that had been in the suburbs or in other communities much longer. So how old were you at this time when you started um, volunteering? 15, 16. I think I have been a rebellious activist. Why do you say that? I knew injustice for what it was, and I didn't adjust very well to uh, injustice. So you're in the company of great, powerful women, women that are also ordained, women who made up the backbone of the breadbasket movement. Did they, well, we know that they did, but how did they mentor you? Could you talk about the women of the breadbasket movement and how they moved and how they impacted you? Yeah, like Reverend Willie Barrow was a preeminent organizer. And so she said, did you call so-and-so? And I said, well, I left a message. No, you didn't call her. So if you didn't make a contact, she was saying, and talk to a person, you hadn't made the phone call. She taught me how to organize uh, meetings and people. And she could rev up a crowd and have you just walk in. You don't, you don't even know why you're walking, but you knew you had to do that until she said, it's over. So she had the ability to organize people. And she also taught me how to break things down. We tend to talk above the masses. And so for her, she said, if I don't know it, nobody knows it. And I'd be thinking... I don't know if you're going to understand this. So if you can't make it plain for Aunt Jane, then you're not reaching the people that need to hear the information. Reverend Addie Wyatt was a labor leader. And so I remember 
she always frames things uh, in a spiritual context. And she would just, if there would be a heated moment in a discussion, in a meeting, I used to watch her in meetings with, with men. She would just say, let's pause for station identification. And then she'd go and quote some scriptures and give people time to cool off. She was a great negotiator. Men loved having her around because she had a peaceful spirit. She was not adversarial. And she would make her point. She was a great speaker, public speaker. She rose up in the labor movement because her style. And I liked her. She was very feminine. Because some women, when they go into male careers, they feel like they have to be as male as the men. She didn't hoop when she preached. And so, you know, because I didn't have role models for preaching because you don't have that many women that are in ministry that are considered great preachers. The one that I remember was Dr. Prathia Hall-Wynn. I mean, she she, uh, was one of Freedom Riders. She had been arrested. When she preached, you could just see the halo. She would just stand in the pulpit and you could just feel the spirit because she had experienced so much in a very short time. And the other uh, great preaching woman in the movement, Claudette Copeland, who had been in the, in the military. And when I heard her preach, she just had people crying. She had men crying because of the, the power of their messages. And then later there was a preacher, Miss Lucille Loman, who helped more pastors in Chicago get placed in pulpits than any person I know. She quoted scriptures all day long. She knew the Bible, and um, she was active in the movement. She's the reason PUSH has the building. She negotiated, found the building, negotiated the mortgage and everything. And so I saw women in ministry, but also saw women in business. John Rogers' mother was a mentor, Jewel LaFontaine, one of the great lawyers, female lawyers, had her own law firm, but just a brilliant lawyer. She had so much class, she just sat with her. I wish I could be like her, but she just had no, I mean, just grace and uh, humility with the grace. You had attorney Arnett Hubbard, who, was the first woman head of the Cook County Bar Association, first female head of the National Bar. So I had enough women in law and ministry to help me get a view of what it could look like. So when we talk about breadbasket and we talk about the women who were the primary leaders along with men, how did they interface with you? I was younger. And so different ones related differently. Miss Loman was always everybody's godmother. So she just pray with you and crash. She thought you were going to get you were in trouble. So she was more motherly. Reverend Barrow just was very hard taskmaster, I think. And I, I guess it's because she had to fight for every everything she got. She had to fight to get to where she was. It wasn't like handed to her. Nobody looks at a woman and says, oh, you look like a preacher. You know, where they look at men, I don't know what a preacher looks like, but they would see them. Reverend Addie was always giving me guidance because now I'm married, I have a child, and I'm in the movement. And so she she talked about uh, how you balance those things. She was always more spiritual between her and Miss Loman. 
I think they kept me more grounded. And do you think that the role of women has been underrated in the civil rights movement? Oh, absolutely. It has been under. We, we're almost ignored, but the women have carried the movement and the men get the platform. But much of the work was done. I mean, Amelia Boynton and Selma putting all that stuff together, inviting Dr. King in the first place. You look throughout the pages of history, there are women who frame the, the bridge of the movement. And we tend not to demand credit for it, but we, sh we deserve it. And there are, just a, there are some men that are more embracing, like Dr. Moss is always lifting women as he lifts men. He doesn't make a difference. He recognizes the disparities, and so he, he keeps pushing. Has that been frustrating along the journey for you? Oh, it has been. I used to ask the women, how did y'all do this? I said, this is crazy. Yeah. It's almost like we become invisible to people. Look at the March on Washington. They named the men as if the women were not even there, and they made that march happen. What was the response that you receive from the women when you ask them, how do you do this? What, what did they say to you? You have to pray and you have to know it's your calling. It's your charge to keep. And now let me introduce our guest for this episode. I am thrilled to welcome Bishop Vashti Murphy McKenzie. Bishop McKenzie is the interim president and general secretary of the National Council of Churches of Christ in the USA and a retired bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. In 2000, McKenzie became the first woman to be elected as bishop in the denomination's history. She served as president of the Council of Bishops, becoming the first woman to serve as titular head of the AME Church. I am excited to be in conversation with the bishop because she is no stranger to the fight for civil rights and leadership on an international platform. Welcome, Bishop. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's uh, great to be with you and to be in conversation. And we can add a little more something else to that, that resume. I'm no longer interim. I am the president and general secretary of the National Council of Christian Churches in the United States of America. Wonderful. Congratulations to you. So glad that they are blessed now with your leadership. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. So Reverend Dr. Wilson admires you a whole lot. Ah. And she was ecstatic when I told her that we were able to connect with you and have you to be the guest for her interview. And given your status as the first female bishop in the AME Church, we wanted to get your perspective, uh, not only on her interview, but also the role of women in the church and the role of women in leadership in general. So hearing the words of Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson regarding the civil rights movement, did you see any parallels with your own experiences? Well, yes, absolutely. We found ourselves when the civil rights movement was coming along that women were present. They were working behind the scenes, but they often didn't get the credit. They didn't get the acknowledgement. They, they didn't make the podium. <laughs> they may have been in the room where discussions were happening and decisions were made and perhaps even had an assignment or two. But when it came into the final analysis, they weren't on stage. They weren't at the mic. They weren't at the podium. And no one said no one said good job. Uh, if memory serves me correctly, actually, the Montgomery bus boycott really was a response to a group of women who 
did a successful one-day boycott that after that happened, Dr. King took it and expanded until Montgomery, Alabama uh, integrated its bus system. So you will find that often behind some great decisions, some great movement, a great project, a great opportunity, there was a woman who said, why don't we just go ahead and try it? We can talk about it. We can research it. We can write the dissertation. But why don't we just go ahead and try and see what happens? And I think that's what happened with the Montgomery uh, bus boycott. They, they tried to see what happened, prove that it can be a workable deal. The rest is history. I think behind the March on Washington, there were women who uh, were providing leadership in so many areas. And in my own life, I was in school. I was a kid. I was in summer camp. And my parents came and got me and says, we're going to the March on Washington. Now you have to understand, as a kid, I didn't want to go. <laughs> I was in camp. I was having a ball. We were swimming every day, you know, arts and crafts, the whole nine yards. We, we, we were, you know, out in the woods in Southern Maryland on the river, just having a time of our lives at, at, at a Y camp. And you're going to come and get me and do what? <laughs> We're going to Washington, D.C., to the March on Washington. But of course, when I got there, I was just absolutely immersed. And because I was the youngest, my mother, her five sisters, her four other sisters were present, covering it for the family newspaper, the Afro-American uh, newspaper, which was at the time one of the largest weekly uh, Black newspapers in the country. So they were there writing and covering it. I was the runner. So they were sat, they sat under the tree because it was hot that day, extremely hot. They sat under the tree and I was the runner and I would go up, run up the steps. And who did you see? Harry Belafonte went up the steps. He went up the steps. Sammy Davis Jr., you know, whoever it was. Who was it? Who was it? Was it? Because I was little, I could, you know, squeeze in between, you know, and I reached out, I touched them, I touched them. I, touched them. I was all excited, you know, because I was seeing heroes and sheroes that you saw in your newspaper, in your community, every now and then, rarely on television. They were there, you know, hey, there's Mary Jackson, there she is, she's right there, she's singing, she's gonna sing, she's gonna sing. So I became the runner that day. I heard the speeches, but I was uh, a lot older before I understood the significance of that day and the significance of the speeches and the things that were made. You know, when you mentioned your childhood, I think I read also that you were on the front lines and you integrated a school. Is that the case? Well, when integration came to Baltimore City, I was a part of a group of young kids. We, you know, here we go again. You are leaving your school. I was in the fifth grade going into the sixth grade at Robert Brown Elliott School number 104, colored school number nine. Hmm. In the west side of Baltimore, a block shy of Pennsylvania Avenue, which was the hub, the core of Baltimore City at that time. Uh, the businesses along Pennsylvania Avenue were black owned, black owned. So you had the grocery store, you had the market, you had the appliance store, the beauty shop, the barber shop, businesses, and the Royal Theater, where anybody who was anybody came and sang or performed at, on the stage of the Royal Theater. Of course, I wasn't old enough to get in there, but when I got to be a teenager, I snuck in there. But here you are, I'm in my wonderful community where I walked to school. I walked to school, walked a couple of blocks to school. My brother walked to his junior high school. That's what it was called, the Booker T. Washington Junior High School. And I went down to colored school number nine. And then all of a sudden I'm bussed across town. I had to be out of my bed, 
getting on a school bus at 6 a.m. to be driven across town to to compete academically with kids who slept to 6 30, 7, mm. 8 o'clock in the morning. And they walked to school, uh, but now I'm being bused to school. And so it was a, a learning experience. I was immersed in a culture that was not familiar to me. And the way being treated differently. I, I came out of a black community, a black church, black school, black neighborhood, where my teachers were my Sunday school teachers. They were my aunts there. The principal was a part of the network, your social network. If you did something good, your parents found out about it before you got home. If you were out of line, they also found out about it on the way home. And all of the aunties that you passed on the way, walking home, either praised you or corrected you. Mm -hmm. And now you are immersed in a totally different culture where people looked at you, you don't have a right to be here. And that's where you learned that you had to prove that you had a right to be there. And that's where you found out that you had to be better than anybody else for the position. It was quite different. And that was in elementary school, the same uh, being the first wave of Black students in middle school, the first wave of Black students in high school. So you had a trajectory and a history of being the first and it has carried throughout your career. I just want you to tell us a little bit about what it's like being the first. <laughs> well, sometimes it makes you feel like you're a fish out of water because there are no reference points. There's no one in front of you who is a role model who's demonstrating the way to go. But what you find out is that some of the same skills that you learned in the last place you were serve uh, that serves you in the future you find that many times you have to make your own way. The mentors and the coaches that were present in your other uh, scenario are not present this time. So you have to learn how to make your own way. Uh, when people ask me, you know, well, what is it like being first? And sometimes it's lonely because there, there's not another reference point, another human being that you can be in conversation with and ask questions with. You have to come knowing. So that means you immerse yourself in a lot of research and a lot of research, not just books, but also people who may be in similar positions. Because the first female doctor, the first female lawyer, the first female judge, the first female school principal, all of them, uh, we all have uh, similar experiences. And at the end of the day, when we get in the door, we are very, very very intentional to be sure that the door doesn't close behind us. Amen. The door can never close behind us. The greatest frustration is, is that when someone does get in space and they do close that door, it is frustrating, but you learn to press your way. So I tell people there are three things that you need. You need God, grace, and guts. You need God to put you in a position that you cannot put yourself. Uh, you need Guts, because it's going to take a lot of courage and a lot of strength, perseverance and resilience to be in that position. And then grace so that your friends nor your enemies can use your mistakes against you. We're not worried about your success, but that your friends nor your enemies can use your mistakes against you. Uh, that's a powerful testimony. And I appreciate you sharing that for all of us who, who find ourselves as firsts. You may recall in the interview, Reverend Wilson talks about individuals around her. You talk about how uh, you had you had some level of support from the community that you had come from. 
she talked about a lot of the strong female leaders that were active in that early breadbasket movement. Did you recognize any of the names by any chance, some of the people that she mentioned? Was it uh, new for you? Oh, no. Willie Tap Barrow is one of my sheroes. All right. You know, Willie Tap Barrow, she may not have been the, the tallest person in the world, but she was tall in stature. She was tall in the ministry. She was tall in her preachment and preaching. She was an activist par excellence. So, you know, she took no prisoners. You understand, you know, like, yeah. if you're going this way, this is where we're going. And if you are in the way, you are not a barrier, but you're just a hurdle. And we're going <laughs> to we're going to soar over this hurdle to get done uh, what needs to get done. But Willie Tapp was an extraordinary woman. And she's one of the sheroes of, of uh, activism in the civil rights movement. You know, what I found exciting was how Reverend talked about the unique character of each of those women. They were different. Some had more tough styles and others were softer in terms of their approach, but they all had strength. And I'm wondering from you um, if you could talk about the unique challenges of being a strong female leader, especially in a traditionally male dominated context? Well, I think you first have to know yourself. You have to have an understanding of your own strengths and your own weaknesses. You also have to have an understanding of your own gifting and be confident in your gifting that you will do you and not mimic someone else. So the earliest women who came into the ministry at a time when there were not a lot of women in the ministry were often pushed to preach like a man. You got a you, three points, a ham and a hoop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if you didn't have, you may have the points that if you didn't have no hoop, you didn't preach at all, right? That's right. That's right. Right. So you have to be confident that God will use you the way you are. Yes, there are changes when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, there's growing challenges and all of that. But God uses you as you are everything that is about you. So you don't have to preach like someone else. You don't have to be like someone else. And then you have to have what I call your ideal of leadership. You know, I've been in many different places. I've served in in broadcasting and broadcast management. I've, I've been corporate vice president of programming. And so I've been in several different levels in several different facilities. And I have been in what I call blood and guts facilities where the walls doesn't have artwork, but the blood and guts of people who have been cut up and misused and abused in a working relationship. And I made a decision early on that there's another way to do this. You don't have to kill people in order to get them to work for you. Yes. There is a way, uh, there is a way and style of leadership that's uniquely yours and God can use you and that but I also, I, you know, I wrote about it in my book, Not Without a Struggle, that there are various styles that, that we have from the finesser, from the street cred. You know, you got to have some street cred and you got, you know, you know, I laugh, you know, with people and, and they say, I said, that is, there's, you know, don't lose all your hood. You, you understand? That's right. That's right. Don't lose all your hood. You know, <laughs> time you have to pull that thing out, you know? Now you're there. You're right. <laughs> so, so every leader ought to have several different approaches, several different styles in their toolkit so that you can use the style that is appropriate for the moment. 
women tend to be relational in our leadership style. And there's a time and a place for that relational aspect. But when you're in rough waters and the ship is about to sink, we don't have time to have a conversation. Let's talk about it. It's time for a command. Get up, move, go, do this. This is what we're going to do. No, we're not going to have a talk. No, uh, we don't have time for staff meeting. It's time for us to act. Otherwise, by the time you finish that meeting, we're going to be underwater. We're not going under today. You be confident in who you are. Develop your gifting and styles. Be sure you have several tools in your leadership toolkit and then trust the process that God is preparing you for your next level. Trust the process. Trust the process. Bishop, did you have mentors or people that really helped to build you up along your journey? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Both men and women. I, I, I grew up in a very unique family. My great-grandfather founded the Afro-American newspaper when only like one half of 1% of Africans in America were reading, which is really a risk. But he had developed this Sunday school helper in the basement of Bethel AME Church and took that, of course, family legend is that uh, his wife gave him $250 of her butter and egg money and he purchased uh, printing printing equipment and, and that's when the Afro was born. When my grandfather, the youngest of his 10 children, took over when he died, took over the Afro and grew it to be one of the largest Black weekly newspapers in the country. Uh, But as he was approaching the sunset years of his life, he had five daughters. He did not have any sons. And so the daughters followed him into the business, which meant I was surrounded by women who were doing things that women were not traditionally doing. So my aunts were editors. I had an aunt who was a publisher. They were writers. They were advertising managers. They were marketing and branding gurus. And and so I was surrounded by women, my mother and her sisters, who got to do things not because they were female or male. They got to do them because that was their gifting. That was their skill. And they had experience in it. So in that atmosphere now, I'm, I'm growing up not looking at career choices and looking at what you can and cannot do according to what is traditional for women or what's traditional for men. But I grew up in an atmosphere where if you could do it, that was your permission to do it. If you got that talent, that was God's permission for you to use it. God doesn't give you stuff to waste. And so you share your pedigree for leadership came from the collective body of individuals who were around you. And that sounds so similar to what Reverend talked about in, in her own testimony, how many people, particularly the women, came around breadbasket, brought their talents, their skills, their gifts, their unique ways of being, and they brought that into the movement. And I'm wondering, Bishop, as we look at the present age, how do you think we should better leverage that collective power within the church the way they did during the breadbasket era? We have to get to the place where we are able to appreciate each other's uniqueness without being threatened by that uniqueness and without being jealous of that uniqueness and understand that it's going to take take all of us to make this deal work, whether take all of us to make church work, all of us to make business work, um, all of us to make commerce work. It takes all of us. So if we start looking at each other's uniqueness, okay, you do this very well. Wonderful. Let's let you run with this. 
We want you to get the full magnitude of what you bring to the table. But often you find yourself in places where everybody's agreed on a program of mediocrity and you show up with your excellent self, right? And so you viewed as the threat uh, to mediocrity without saying, okay, let's see, let's see if we could get a, you know, a little bit of this excellence to come along and perhaps amplify what we are doing. I think we have to get to, to that place, just like it took Mary and Martha to build the salvation plan when Jesus stopped by their house. Well, you know, Martha was the cook and the cleaner and, and, and Mary was going to sit in the living room with the boys listening to Jesus teach. And it took both of them to tell the story. It's going to take both of our uniqueness, male and female, just like Deborah sitting under the tree who judged Israel for 40 years. It took her to go to the captain of the Lord's army and says, uh, look here, God has already told you, you need to go against the enemy. God has already told you, you're going to win. What's the matter with you? And he says, well, I want you to go with me. She doesn't have no degree in military science. She has no, no experience of going to war, but she got herself uh, took herself to the battlefield and joined in the fight. So it, it just like it took both of them to get that deal done. It's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of us to get the deal done. And as you mentioned, you are enough. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I appreciate that. I, when when I was uh, ordained, my mentor who uh, worked with me through the process said that at my ordination. And she looked at me and she said, Brian, uh, Dr. Mosby, Brian, you are enough. So I appreciate that from you, uh, Bishop. And I want to ask you as a trailblazer in leadership and ministry, how would you advise emerging leaders, both male and female in the present age? Times have changed and COVID has changed the world all at the same time. I believe the changes were coming to church and community and country. They were on the way, but COVID fast forward these changes. And instead of happening incrementally in, in various spots and corners of the world, it happened at all of the same time. As such, I think we need to prepare our leadership, emerging leaders to serve in this new context. Most of the time we train people to go to a place where there are already people and you manage those people, you manage that corner that you sit on and develop the ministry preferably that is needed for that community and for that time. But I think now with the technology being as it is that we need to start training people with entrepreneur skills who don't need to have the stage set everything perfectly in a row where there's a group of people that they can go to a, be assigned to a, assigned someplace they've never been where there are no people and come back and bring a Bible study or plant a church pioneers. We're not developing pioneers. We are developing managers. We're not developing leaders. And there's a difference between leadership and management. Management takes care of the bottom line. The leaders are looking to the horizon to see what's next. And we need to develop more leaders to complement uh, the managers that we already have. I would share with emerging leadership, do not be afraid to start small. Newer generations want to go to the head of the class the first day. I graduate from college and I expect to be the chairman of the board. That's a fine ambition, but don't be afraid to start wherever you get in and learn everything you can. One of the things I think, one of the, one of the issues that rise up is that many emerging 
generations don't think there's anything they can learn from us. Mm. And they have energy, they have innovation, they have great ideas, but there are some things that your elders can teach you. My mother used to say, young folk are for running, old folk are for cunning. We have experience and strategies and things like that, that we can teach you. It's like the exchange of Reverend Wilson when she said, Willie Tap Barrow asked her, did you call them? He said, well, I left a message and you didn't talk to them. <laughs> that didn't happen. No, 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 no. Strategy says it doesn't happen until you do A, B, C, and D. So there's strategy, there's experiences, there's information that you get from experiences that they can't teach you in a textbook and you won't get in a class. It just comes by being in the field. And we can share that. And I say that at the same time is that there are things that we can learn from emerging generations as well. So that goes back to if we are able to appreciate each other's uniqueness and what each of us bring to the table, then we recognize it's going to take all of us to get the deal done. Thank you, Bishop. I think that is a great closing statement. I don't know if you have any other words that you'd like to share with us. And I'm just envisioning classrooms, young people hearing these words and growing and and going out into the world and becoming transformative agents themselves. So do you have any other closing comments that you'd like to share with us before we end this conversation? Brian, let me say thank you for having me and thank you for asking the questions. And it's it's great to hear Reverend Wilson's story and, and testimony. Let me say this, as we move forward in the future, Other groups of people are planning 25 years ahead. We're just trying to get through the day. And we need to have some segment of our community who is looking to the horizon to put together that five, that 10, that 15, that 20, that 25 year plan that in order for us to be relevant and viable and successful tomorrow, There's some things we have to do today. And I just don't hear that kind of conversation in a lot of places. Yes, we need to be trying to get through the day, but we also have to be taking a look at how we're going to position children and grandchildren so that they are placed appropriately for their leadership, their gifting to flourish. We've built the foundation. We just need to be able to launch the next generation into where they can take what we've done even higher. Thank you so much, Bishop. I'm so grateful for you joining us in conversation today on Our Seven Neighbors. Thank you very much. Thank you. What a beautiful conversation. Hope you enjoyed that. All our episodes can be found at OurSevenNeighbors.com. Check it out. This podcast and the full Jackson Oral History Project is brought to you by the Interreligious Institute at the Chicago Theological Seminary. Please listen to our first episode, if you haven't yet, featuring a conversation with Mrs. Jesse Jackson. And join us again as we drop more episodes very soon for this season, featuring other important figures in the Chicago movement on Our Seven Neighbors, Birth of a Chicago Civil Rights Movement, Stories from the Archives. Thanks for listening.